just inside the sheep gate in the wall surrounding Jerusalem, there was apparently a spring-fed pool of water that was called Bethesda. There were five rows of columns there and a roof that was over that area to protect people from the sun and from the rain as they gathered at that pool. And We really have no historical explanation that has survived, but the waters were believed to possess healing powers when they were stirred up. By what means, we have no idea. But invalids congregated around the pool, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And one man who lay on a mat beside the pool had been an invalid for 38 years. It's a long time. For 38 years, unable to work or to function normally in society. The man lived in bondage to his physical ailment. Passing by Bethesda one Sabbath day, Jesus saw this man lying on the ground and he said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And that's what the man did in the power of God, in his mercy, in his grace to him. Now, we don't know any more of this man's story, but we can be sure that he went home a new man. He had been liberated by Jesus from a realm of infirmity, from the state of illness that had controlled him every moment of his life for these 38 years. Put yourself in his place. He rolls up his mat, on which he had only moments before been lying in a state of weakness, and now in a state of health and freedom, He returned home to a new life. But a guy learns a lot of habits in 38 years. I imagine this wasn't just all that easy for him. He had to learn to function in a realm of freedom into which his God-given health had translated him. He had to go to work and to provide for his own needs now. And he hadn't done that for a long time. Not in the fullest sense. And you know, I wonder if there weren't perhaps some days when the guy wanted to take his mat back to the pool of Bethesda and lay it out again and just lay there. You know, lying by the pool in the shade of that pavilion, it it really wasn't all that bad of a life. There's some trials out here. There's some difficulties out here. And maybe sometimes the pull of the old life actually had a voice and called him back. We don't know. But if he was your neighbor and you learn that day after day he was indeed carrying his mat back to Bethesda and lying there all day with the other invalids begging alms, what would you think? He'd say that this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense at all. That's not why Jesus healed you so you can stay here. He said, after all, take up your mat and go home. He doesn't want you to stay here in this state of infirmity and giving in to this weakness that once overpowered you. You're a healthy man now. You're not an invalid. There's a life to live. That's probably what something like that we would say to him if given opportunity. And that would be good counsel. And so it is, in a way of analogy, a good counsel to us as followers of Jesus Christ. So it is with us. Like that invalid, we were born into a state of moral bondage to sin, and we were consigned at birth to a state of natural alienation from God. 
We were moral invalids who lived in rebellion against the Lord. I invite you to Romans chapter 5 as we consider that thought. And we'll use this invalid. I'm not seeking to exegete his account, but simply to hijack it for illustrative purposes, to use it throughout as we consider who we are in Christ, having considered in this series the depth of our sinfulness and the wonder of God's saving grace. We read of it in Romans chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago, for while we were still weak, verse 6 of chapter 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So let's think of it again. Through repentant trust in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ in our place, we are delivered from God's wrath against our sin, and we are reconciled to Him. Now let's go back to our invalid. This man we, who was sick, unable to walk. As we think of him and put ourselves in that place by way of analogy, Christian, you have been liberated from the power of sin. If you have come to genuinely know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He set you free from sin and its bondage. We have no more necessity to sin now than the invalid had to go back to lying on his mat at the pool. Jesus canceled the debt of our sin. He also liberates us then from the bondage of sin that we can live a radically new life in a new moral realm as a new spiritual man in Christ. And he expects us to live that way. He says to us in a sense, roll up your mat and walk. Go home and live. Take it all the way home. And we learn as we come to Romans chapter 6, first of all, beginning in the first four verses of this great chapter, that we must not live in sin, but walk in newness of life. This is the call to us here. We must not walk in sin, but live in newness of life. This is our calling as people liberated from sin by Christ. What shall we say then, questions Paul, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This takes us back to chapter 5 and verse 20, where he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Is there any sin too great for God's grace to forgive? There is not. God's grace conquers any sin, and the greater the sin, the greater the wonder of His grace. Well, then, this might be seen as quite a deal for sinners. I like to sin, and God likes to forgive. What an arrangement. Let's have at it. Let's just keep going and show the wonder of His grace to continue to meet us in our sin. And apparently some of Paul's critics were accusing Paul of this very reasoning. Chapter 3 and verse 8 would support that. He responds sharply. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? For the born-again believer to live in unmitigated sin is not only illogical, I believe that Paul is saying here is that it is impossible. 
You can't continue to live in the realm of sin. You don't live in the realm of sin. You have been set free from sin and from its bondage. The believer's relationship to sin has undergone a death. That is, we have experienced a fundamental change of state with respect to sin. Paul doesn't describe this here as signing a new contract. He pictures it here as a death. There is to be no question how dramatically our relationship to sin has changed. Indeed, as Paul puts it here in verse 2, we died to sin. How can we still live in it? Now, what does he mean by that? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, there might be a bit that we don't understand there, but it's fairly clear that he's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying that his death and his resurrection has something to do with us. Indeed, he references here baptism. Many view this as spirit baptism. Some have said there's not a single drop of water in Romans chapter 6. Meaning by that, that there is simply a reference here to spirit baptism in our salvation. Well, I don't think anyone in the ancient context would assume such a meaning unless there was some qualification. There is no qualification here. He says you were baptized and immediately would come to their mind, their baptism as they became believers in Christ. Others take this as baptismal regeneration. It is water, and it's the water that saves. It is by this ritual act that God in some way, sacramentally, saves the person who is baptized. But this conflicts horribly with chapter 4 and the salvation by faith alone theme that Paul has just developed. Perhaps the key is to remember that in the ancient church, baptism and conversion were not carefully divided. There really was no need to do that in their day. There is need to do that in our day because of the prominence of the theme of baptismal regeneration. There are so many who believe that water does save them. They come to us as a church, have been infant baptized or in some way baptized, thinking that it contributes to their salvation. There needs to be time to work through that in our culture. And to understand that even for those who haven't been baptized, many times they think of it in terms of baptismal regeneration just because of the world that surrounds us. But remembering in the ancient context, there wasn't that division. By that I don't mean that water baptism saved anyone. Salvation comes in the inner spirit as Christ cleanses us through the baptism of the Spirit. There's no question of that, but the baptism that followed physically as identification with Christ and His people was something seen as as one and the same. As some have suggested here, baptism may be used as a synecdoche. You remember back to English class, you probably don't, but that just simply means one small word for a larger concept. If I could simplify it that way, we say it all the time when we ask for the keys of a car. Well, we really don't care to play around with the keys. We want to drive the car. But we talk about, the, give me the keys. And we know what that means. It means to drive the car away. Here, perhaps, baptism is functioning in a similar way. Baptism is just talking about our salvation. Not water regeneration, but our salvation in Jesus Christ. Do you not know... 
that those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death. And the consequence is, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is simply saying then, that when we were saved, we were united with Christ's death and resurrection. Now, when precisely that takes place, I don't know that he really nails that down or is concerned about that. It's something of an odd temporal sense here. We died with Jesus when Jesus died on Calvary. We died with Jesus at our conversion. But this is whole thing kind of taken as a lump together. There is an identification with the death and resurrection of Christ. But the key is that we are freed to walk in newness of life. That's what he really focuses on here, is that the salvation that we have in Christ is intended to transform us. It's intended to translate into a life that is new and different. Jesus suffered death, which is the penalty of sin. By suffering that penalty and overcoming it, we are united to Jesus and we enter into that conquest. We who are baptized slash saved are freed from the power of sin to live in a state of new life. Now, if you can remember back to math class, for some of us, some of us don't have to remember it all, You can think about it, maybe in junior high or high school math class, you started to be introduced to certain formulas. And there's these formulas that are given to you that help you figure things out, distance and speed and mass and volume and these kinds of things. I could generally function with the formulas when they were handed to me. Let me tell you, I could never figure out how anybody figured one out. I had not a math mind along those lines. There's some of you who do, but... I just thanks. Thanks for giving me this. And it works. And it saves an immense amount of time. As you plug this thing in and work it out, you actually solve it. Now, there's a way in this analogy it can be this can be misunderstood. There's no formulas for the Christian life in the sense of this key secret that nobody knew, and here we've discovered it. Not that way, but there is a sense in which I think this serves as an analogy. God hands us here. A formula of sorts. Not a formula to follow step by step, but he's handing us wisdom or what the Bible calls revelation. And he is saying, you've got to get this. Christian, you died with Christ and you rose with him. You're not going to figure that out. That's not something some guys got together in a huddle and said, let's come up with this concept. This is not human thinking. There is no way on this planet that anybody could come up with Romans 6 on their own and just say, this makes logical sense. We can come up with things such as, if you do good works, you'll go to heaven. That's human thinking. That makes logical sense. It's flat wrong, but it's logical at least as far as it goes. But I died with Christ. I rose with him. It's beyond me. I'm not going to be able to figure it out. I'm never going to be able to plumb the depths of it. But I need to recognize this. There's some of us who have recognized this truth and have read through the book of Romans numerous times, have heard this often and in other places. And there's some of you, this is the first time you ever thought about that. Think about it. You'll never get to the bottom of it. But this is of sorts a formula that God reveals to us and says here. 
This is truth I need to have you understand. You died with Christ. You rose with him in your salvation. Now in verses 5 through 11, Paul expands upon and stresses the importance of our union with Jesus' death and resurrection before he turns it to moral imperative in verse 12. Verse 5, and we'll move through this fairly rapidly, but he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, I couldn't figure this out. It didn't come from human thinking, but that much makes sense if you walk into this world, right? We've been united with him in his death. We'll certainly be united with him in his resurrection. I think this verse would be better translated from the original text. We've been united with him in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. Simply put, united to Jesus in his death... We will enjoy the likeness of His resurrection as well. It will be of the same sort, the same quality. It will be one with Him, obviously coming at a different time than His, and being somewhat distinct in that it's individualistic. But it will be a resurrection in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. And we begin to note here, as we think of other places where Paul has written on these themes, a certain already-not-yet situation. The focus here is on the not yet. Colossians 2 and verse 12 speaks of the present aspect, where it says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful workings of God who raised him from the dead. So Colossians, Paul speaks of having been raised with Christ in past tense. It's something that's a done deal. Here he speaks of it as something that's future. Well, is Paul confused? No, they're both the case. I have risen with him, past tense, and I will rise with him, future tense. There's a fulfillment of what has begun. Now in verse 6 he continues, We know then that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You notice that phrase, our old self was crucified. Our old self, or literally the old man in the Greek text, we were all born in Adam, I think is the idea. We were born into the realm of sin and death. Now follow this. We need to dig in here. When you trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, if you have, you were united to Him. Your life in Adam was rendered inoperative. That is the idea here in verse 6, in that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Brought to nothing could be translated rendered inoperative. So when you trusted Christ as your Savior, sin was stripped of its power to influence you in a domineering way. Let's go back to Bethesda. The man was healed. The power of illness to influence his life was what? It was rendered powerless. It was rendered inoperative. He was a new man under the influence now of health. The old self is what we are in Adam, enslaved to sin. But now the body of sin, that is our life in an unredeemed state in this world, is suspended. And it is drained of its power to rule over us. That's gone. That bondage is over. It's been broken. Verse 7. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is something of an interpretive translation, but I think it's on track. The power of sin over our lives in this fallen world is broken because we died with Christ to sin. And the obvious inference is, verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Why does he keep going back to this? We've died with Him, it means we're going to live with Him. He's saying, live with Him. That's what we need to do. We've been freed to this. Since we're united to Jesus' death, and since He rose from the dead, we will also rise from the dead. We're spiritually alive now, but our resurrection awaits the future. So verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. What is it saying? Death has no mastery over Jesus because he submitted to its power in order to conquer it. Although he had committed no sin, Jesus came under the law and under the powers of the old age. How else did he die? We say this all the time, Jesus was sinless, but Jesus died. The wages of sin is death. How is this possible? Jesus submits to the law. He submits to the powers of the old age ruled by death. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered the power of death, became the first fruits of the new age of redemption in which we will participate. Okay, deep breath, and we say, that's all, wow. That's profound, that's deep, but honestly, so what? Does it really matter? Does it translate into anything? Verse 11. So you also. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. A key to our struggle with sin is to think reality. Reality is, what we must learn to consider true is, that we are no longer under the power of sin, but we are alive to God by virtue of our relationship with Christ. So, are we supposed to kind of just, you know, knock our head against the wall and convince ourselves, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin. I mean, I don't really believe it and I feel sinful all the time and I'm tempted, but I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin. Is that what he's, no, that's not it at all. No, go back to the invalid. When the guy stood up and walked, he was saying, I'm walking here. It was reality. Now, under the pressures of the old realm, he could have been afraid to get up and walk away and said, I'm going to stay right here on my mat because it's comfortable here. People carry me here and they carry me home and they provide my food and it's rough to beg for alms and wish you could be healed, but this is my life. You say, no, no. And he would say to you, you're just trying to convince me of what isn't real. And you'd say to him, no, we're not. Get up and walk. You've got to understand you're in a new realm. This is not a matter of convincing our minds by saying it over and over again that, yeah, I'm free from sin when in my daily life I know I'm not. The reality is that we have been crucified with Christ. We have risen with Him. This is the truth. We must believe it because it's true. 
It's real. It's the revelation of God. So thirdly, we must actively keep ourselves from sin and use our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Now, if you're saying, I'm still not quite getting this. I'm free from the bondage of sin, but I'm still dealing with sin. How does this work? Now we get into the practical of how the truth translates into the response that we are to have. Verse 12, notice it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. All right, time out, Paul. What is it? I mean, you're, you're talking on both sides of your mouth here. Are we dead to sin or are we not? If we're dead to sin, how is it that I deal with temptation all the time? Are we dead to sin or are we not? The answer is yes. Think of Ephesians 4 and verse 22 where he says, Put off the old man. Indicating that we are alive to sin in some sense of the term. Whereas Romans 6, 6 says that our old man is crucified. It is rendered inoperative, that influence in that realm. So like the invalid at Bethesda, we have a whole new state of being. But what we were in Adam, what Doug Moo calls the man of the old age who lives under the tyranny of sin and death, that existence is over. We are crucified to it. So let's think of it this way. We're no longer invalids. We've been healed. But catch this. As healed people, we can choose to fall back into the old patterns, set up our old mat, and lie on it begging for alms from the devil. We're very capable of that. But we aren't under the rule of that realm any longer. There's no more bondage to it. If we want to stand up and walk away and take our mat home to glory, we can do it. Christ has provided this for us. It is in this sense, then, that sin is still alive as long as we are in our mortal bodies. That is, as long as we are part of this age. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a helpful analogy here. I'll draw a couple of them. He pictured the concept of a field. And in this field, there is a stone wall. On the one side of the field is the field into which we are born in Adam. And in that field, we are dominated by the master Satan and by sin. We are unable to break free from the bondage of sin in our own strength and in our own power. And we can't get over that wall. To get onto the other side... In God's kingdom, where there's a different master and there's the breaking of the bondage of sin. But in Jesus Christ, in His message, in the message of forgiveness in Him, we are transferred from this field into the other field. But standing in this new field under Master Jesus and freed from the domination of sin, we can still hear voices over the wall. We can still hear temptations that are coming from there. And in this new realm, we can live as if we're living in the other realm. And we're not in it. We're never going to go back to it. We're not, never going to cross over that wall if we've genuinely been placed here by Christ through saving grace. But we can be influenced by the voices that are over there. And we are. Every one of us. Let me change the analogy just a little bit. You've perhaps read of some of these horrible settings in Africa where there are civil wars and there are young teens that are recruited to fight in rebel armies. 
and the influence that gets them to pick up a gun at such a young age and to kill with ruthless abandon is, first of all, they come under the domination of a warlord. And they are coming under the domination of these warlords through many times being plied by drugs and illicit sex. We have these young teens coming into these powers where they're not helped to resist, but they're actually encouraged, and they join up to kill. They're dominated through and through in fear for their lives if they would ever break free, but dulled by sex and drugs. They don't want to break free. But imagine one of these young men, a 14-year-old young man who's caught in this web of dominance and control, and an invading army comes in and sets him free. He's adopted by the uh, general of the army, and he's placed in a situation which is entirely secure. He now has a new home, a new father. He's no longer under the dominance of the warlord that he served. But is there any cravings yet for... Drugs and illicit sex? Sure. There's still going to be that temptation to bring himself under the old realm and not enjoy the freedoms of the new realm that he's in. Now, it doesn't illustrate it perfectly, but you see the idea. We have been set free. We're in a different field now. We're under a different Lord now. We have been delivered from the bondage of sin, but we've got to act as if this is the case. Sin is not to reign in our mortal bodies to make us obey their passions or to not keep an ear attuned to the voices over the wall. But verse 13, he gets really specific and says, Do not present your members members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He gets right down to the sweaty, grimy details of life here and says, I can use my body parts, I can employ my life in this fallen world as a tool of sin. Or I can choose to take my body and my life and influence in this fallen world and put them at God's disposal. God's given you two eyes. You have ears. There's a tongue There are genitals, there are hands, there are legs, there are feet, there is a mind. These are all tools that can accomplish good or can accomplish evil. And we put those tools in the service of one agenda or the other. On this side of the field, on this side of the wall, we put our influence our life in this world at the disposal of the voices we hear over the wall of the old life and the old master, or we put them at the disposal of Jesus Christ to live for His glory and for His honor. We're making those decisions and choices every moment of our lives. So, he closes... For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. 
Sin will continue to lure you in and tempt you, but sin has no power over you. As genuinely born-again believers, we sin for one reason. We want to. Pressure's there, the influence is there, the, the temptation is severe, but Jesus taught us as He dealt with the hardest temptations possible and imaginable and drained them. We know that in Christ we can resist whatever Satan throws at us, whatever temptation comes, whatever passion is there. We can say no. The struggle is that we don't always want to. Sin is no longer our slave master. We're not under law. I think a reference to the Mosaic law, and you might say, well, where does this come from? But with Paul, it's never really far from the surface. This idea of law and grace. It's a reminder that law excites sin in us and ultimately condemns us because of our weakness. Grace is not licentiousness or libertarian freedom to do whatever we choose, but grace speaks of the new age of salvation through death and resurrection in Jesus. So as we back away from this text itself and we think of the message of Romans as a whole, we have a grand redemptive scheme in which God is restoring the universe. He is restoring all that He has made. We need to know, as one has said, our part in this divine drama of redemption, of which the gospel is central. Siegfried says, God's triumph over the world runs directly through the heart and life of the believer. When the old lordship of sin must be conquered anew in every situation and in every circumstance, this work that God is doing to redeem everything that is runs right through your heart. You're part of this program. Sin's not just an arrangement that you make with the church or with the family or even with God. Or, you know, it's just more comfortable if I live in a certain way. Sin is a project that Jesus is crushing to death. He's won the victory. He's delivered us from its power, but he's up to something. Now, he's up to something in your heart and my heart as believers in Christ, but he's up to something in the big scheme of things. He's redeeming this whole planet and this whole universe. Every element in it will be ultimately bought by Christ and redeemed. Some judged And some reconcile to God. That's a work He's doing in you. And it's a work with which you participate when you say no to sin. When you say yes to God. I belong to a new master now. And I'm joining His work of salvation. So know this. We have been freed from the tyranny of sin and have no reason to continue to live in it. None. There's no benefit. Count this true. We have been united with Christ's death and resurrection. Know it, understand it, contemplate it, revel in it, deepen in it. Let me quote then. And by the way, in all of this, I hope that your mind is turning. These aren't easy thoughts, are they? We, see, we realize we're dealing with wonder here and something that we cannot fully grasp in any one setting. But as we turn our minds to this, let's come to understand what the battle is and how we're to go about it. 
And to this end, let me read at some length from J.C. Ryle's Holiness, book on holiness. He says this, and I think it's very helpful as we contemplate where do I run with this, how do I think of it. He says, the Christian warfare is utterly unlike the conflicts of this world. It does not depend on the strong arm, the quick eye, or the swift foot. It is not waged with carnal weapons, but with spiritual. Faith is the hinge on which victory turns. Success depends entirely on believing. A general faith in the truth of God's written word is the primary foundation of the Christian soldier's character. Hear this. This is good. It's straightforward and simple, but this is good. He says this. He is what he is. That is the Christian believer. He is what he is. Does what he does. Thinks as he thinks. Acts as he acts. Hopes as he hopes. Behaves as he behaves. For one simple reason. He believes certain propositions revealed and laid down in Holy Scripture. Now that has to be filled in. But that is gold. That is exactly it. There are truths that we believe. And it's on that, those truths that we found our faith. He believes, says Ryle, certain propositions revealed and laid down in Holy Scripture. A religion without doctrine or dogma is a simple impossibility. No man will ever be anything or do anything in religion unless he believes something. No one ever fights earnestly against the world, the flesh, and the devil unless he has engraven on his heart certain great principles which he believes. So, let us engrave on our hearts the great principle of union with Jesus in his death and resurrection life. Let us affirm that we are free from the bondage of sin And may God use this truth to convict us of sin, to teach us repentance, to help us get about the business of becoming who we are in Jesus Christ. If you have not come to place your personal faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can know that He died and that He rose again. That He broke the power of sin and death And that as you would come to place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sin will be canceled. You will receive His forgiveness. You will gain a standing in Him. You're going to go into eternity in your own strength, in your own works, or you're going to go into eternity with Jesus Christ as your advocate right by your side, paying the cost of your entrance. There's not much of a choice here. You can go in to meet a God you've never seen, or you can go in with the one who is one with Him. He will give you forgiveness of sin freely, no matter what it is that separates you from God. For those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, there is a profound challenge to us here. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. There is a tremendous call to us here to, in a sense, roll up our mats and walk all the way home. Let's bow for prayer. God, we pray that you would bring us home.
that we would be ever losing the siren sound of this world and of temptation, ever leaving it behind till that voice gets quieter and quieter, until we hear more and more the sound of heaven and its glories. I pray, God, that you would transform us by your word, by this truth that we have died and risen with Christ through faith in the gospel. But I pray, Father, we would be using our eyes and our ears and our tongues and our minds and every part of our bodies in such a way that serves righteousness. And in the quiet of this moment, there is every one of us who sees the specter of our sin and of our failure to listen and to heed the new life call that you've placed upon us. I pray, God, that there would be sweet prayers of repentance that ascend to your throne, knowing that Jesus Christ has paid. That he's paid that penalty in full. Thank you for the wonder of grace. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. And may we live as those who have been forgiven and freed from sin's bondage. Through Christ I pray. Amen.